Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Tonight's show is recorded live on the campus of Gettysburg College at the 2019 Civil War Institute. We'll talk with some Gettysburg College students about the future of Civil War studies from their generation's perspective, and we'll visit a museum in Gettysburg that you won't believe even after you've seen it. That and more tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath, emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Coming to you today, uh, not from Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters in Greenville, but from Gettysburg College in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, on the site of the battlefield itself. It's June 2019, and this is an almost live presentation uh, from the Civil War Institute, the annual meeting here at the college. Uh, But I am not speaking for Gettysburg College or the Civil War Institute or East Carolina University or anything else. And as always, uh, guests on the show will speak only for themselves, not any other institutions. Well, it is June of 2019. It's a very uh, pleasant week here in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. The weather's been nice. It has been a week full of Civil War-related activities. Hard to keep track of anything else happening in the real world. Uh, thus, uh, I would not even bother telling you that East Carolina University baseball was 
eliminated from the NCAA tournament at the super regional level, but I will mention it because my, my alma mater, University of Michigan, is in the College World Series for the first time in 35 years. And uh, always looking for front runners to follow, I'm all aboard the U.S. Women's National Team in the World Cup, which is beating their competition by football, American football-sized scores so far. By the time you listen, who knows where things will be. The last time we spoke on this show, I mentioned that I was planning to lead a tour to Europe, a D-Day 75th anniversary tour, and some folks uh, have asked me about that. Uh, That was a tour sponsored by National Geographic, and uh, I will tell you it was an awesome experience to go to sites. Uh, We saw wonderful sites in England, uh, Bletchley Park, where the Codebreakers uh, learned what the Germans were, were communicating with each other. We saw the Churchill War Rooms. If you've ever seen the movie Darkest Hour, it's, it's just like that. Uh, we got to see the rooms where Churchill met. We went to the Imperial War Museum, HMS Belfast, the last floating survivor of the D-Day flotilla. And in Europe, uh, all the great sites of D-Day, San Mariglis, uh, Utah Beach, Omaha Beach, uh, we went to Juneau Beach, saw the Canadians, did not have time to do the British beaches, and most memorably we were at the American Cemetery on June 6th for the ceremonies there uh, with 12,000 other people. It was it was uh, an awesome event, but it was also stressful, I will say. Uh, the Civil War is what I know best, and uh, World War II uh, not being my wheelhouse, uh, there was some stress from that. Having 10,000, 12,000 other people at every site was stressful. Uh, And uh, National Geographic traveling was a new experience as well. Unlike the tours I normally do with Stephen Ambrose historical tours, the National Geographic people uh, put their folks up in five-star hotels routinely. Uh, And thus it was, uh, that was was new, that was different. in the words of the late uh, Nipsey Russell, comedian from the 1960s, the, at the hotel we stayed in, the, the various hotels, the towels were so big and fluffy I could hardly close my suitcase. Uh, I will say the National Geographic uh, guests also were uh, uh, wonderful to meet. There were some very uh, interesting people, had some great conversations over breakfast. Uh, in contrast, Stephen Ambrose people, there were some who I don't know, obnoxious might be too strong a word. Uh, If you're one of the guests on the trip and you're listening, if you're afraid you are one of the obnoxious guests, I guarantee you, you are one of the wonderful ones. If you're thinking, oh, I'm wonderful, maybe you're in the latter category. Uh, We'll leave it at that. Uh, But it was a great experience. Now the contrast here at Civil War Institute. Uh, A week ago, I'm staying in a five-star hotel in Paris. Uh, This past week, I'm staying in one of the dormitories on the campus of Gettysburg College, uh, which uh, the photo I sent to my wife of the the bare, unadorned dormitory room, she said, looks like a prison, Uh, which, to be fair, all unadorned, bare dormitory rooms look like prisons. Uh, The the accommodations thus are much less comfortable here than uh, in Europe's finest hotels. But I'm like a hog in slop. I was extremely happy to be here back in the Civil War world. 
uh, got to see and talk with people uh, that you and I have been talking with on the show this past season, Gary Gallagher, John Cashin, Peter Carmichael, Amy Taylor, all were on the show in the last six months, and it was nice to see them in person. And it was great to meet lots of listeners. Uh, this year, more than ever, a number of people came up uh, to say hello and talk about the show and, and uh, share their uh, interest in it, and, and that was really uh, wonderful. The Institute itself is just a great way to learn about the Civil War. We, among other things, are tours. Uh, there are bus tours to many other battlefields. I stayed right here uh, in town and went on one tour, for example, of the Wheatfield, the Barnes Division in the Wheatfield, led by uh, Tim Orr at Old Dominion University. He will be on this show in uh, the fall of 2020. I interviewed him while here, but his description of what Barnes Division went through in the wheat field, the, the background he gave, uh, just a, a wonderful example of battlefield explanation. I really enjoyed that. This morning went back out on the battlefield with Chris Gwynn of the National Park Service where he talked about the monuments put up by Union soldiers and how Union soldiers interpreted the Civil War. If there was one great takeaway point, it was that Civil War monuments were controversial when they went up in the 19th century, they were controversial in the 20th century, they're controversial now in the 21st century, but don't let anyone ever tell you, oh, things used to be, we all accepted it. The, the Lee statue on Seminary Ridge met bitter opposition before it went up, after it went up, and uh, now there's opposition again. So interesting to, to learn that. There were other moments, uh, I'll share a down moment, uh, while walking through town stopping in a, a small local business off the beaten path, they overheard the uh, proprietor having a conversation in which uh, he used racial slurs to refer to some noted political figures in the shadow of, of Abraham Lincoln and the Gettysburg Address. It, it was enough to make one despair uh, for the future of the country. And when I asked him about it, I said, did you really just say what I thought you said? He said, oh, that's how I feel. Uh, I felt like spending my money somewhere else, and I left. Uh, on the other hand, uh, spent the rest of the day with uh, Charles Wainwright's uh, diary, uh, diary of battle in hand. I'm sure many of you have read Wainwright's diary. He was an artillerist in the Union Army. And I held the diary in one hand, reading his description of where his men were on the first day up on Seminary Ridge, then on East Cemetery Hill, and walked to those very places and saw where the cannon are today, and was amazed to, to see the accuracy with which these monuments are, are deployed when Wainwright says, well, we put one battery on the ridge, move the other one 20 yards back because of a fold in the ground, and there today are the Park Service cannons right on the ridge, except one battery is 20 yards back because of the fold in the ground. It's exactly where he said they were in July 1863. Uh, amazing how, how deeply the Union veterans cared to get things right like that, and so they did. Uh, we'll come, we're going to talk about the uh, Institute the rest of uh, the day and other things that I saw here during the Institute. Uh, before jumping into that, a quick reminder that next week's show will be the last one of the 2018-2019 uh, season. Nina Silber will be her guest. Her new book is called This War Ain't Over, 
it's about the Civil War in the 1930s, the echoes of the Civil War in federal policy well into the 20th century. Uh, interesting and new topic. There's always something new. Among the reasons there's always something new is there are always new people studying the Civil War. And uh, our guests for the first half of today's show, first two-thirds, are two uh, students here at Gettysburg College who are st students of the Civil War, uh, Cameron Sowers and Benjamin Roy. Uh, ben, Cameron, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. So I, I, I don't know when I hit upon the idea of interviewing uh, undergraduates, but it occurred to me that everybody my age has a strong opinion about you young people today and why you're not interested in the Civil War the way we are, the way you ought to be. And uh, it finally occurred to me as a good historian, why not go to the source? Uh, do, let's ask. Uh, so here, you're both interested in the Civil War. You uh, are involved in the Civil War Institute. You helped make it come about. Um, let me start with that. Uh, Cameron, what, what's your role in Civil War Institute? Um, so this summer, I am the 2019 Sandy Aben Summer Research Fellow at the Civil War Institute. Um, as a part of that responsibility, I was a student staff member helping run um, and organize the logistics for the conference. And for the remainder of the summer, I'm going to be working on a research project uh, supervised by Dr. Peter Carmichael, who's my advisor and my mentor here at the college. During the school year, I serve as a fellow at the Civil War Institute, working on research projects for the Institute and other initiatives that we have, including uh, a digital history project called Kill the Gettysburg and writing for our student-run student blog, The Gettysburg Compiler. So keeping relatively busy. Uh, ben, how about you? What's your connection? <coughs> Excuse me. I'm actually not here on campus this summer with the CWI. I'm doing um, a Colby Research Fellowship, but I'm doing it with Professor Carmichael. And during the school year, I'm also um, a fellow at the Civil War Institute, writing for the blog, doing Killed at Gettysburg. And uh, just this last semester, I was Dr. Carmichael's research assistant, which really entailed working on um, my proposal for the Colby Fellowship. Now, downstairs in the main ballroom where many of the talks were given, there's an exhibit of Civil War photographs uh, that have your names on them, where you interpreted some very well-known photographs of the aftermath of Gettysburg. Uh, talk about that project. It was a very, very interesting one, and I think Cam can say as well that the biggest thing that we got out of the project was just really how to write well. And um, I think I can't heap enough praise upon Dr. Lusky or Dr. Carmichael and just how much they work with us to get our writing up to par. And I hope it, um, it was reflected in the exhibit. But um, that was a really interesting project. We worked with Ron, Ron Parashow. He was at the conference. He's another great guy. And um, we just got to choose the photographs that we wanted to work with. Uh, I chose two images of South Carolina dead and just took our own interpretive angle on it. And um, like I said, drew up our interpretations and Dr. Lusky really helped us with the writing of it. In the panels that I looked at, it seemed you, you made the point that these images of the dead after Gettysburg uh, challenged 19th century ideas of what was a propriety, of what's, what the etiquette allowed in visual imagery, uh, while at the same time trying to support the Union war effort. How, how did they tread that line? Uh, one of the photos that I looked at was from a Philadelphia photographer named Frederick Gutkunst, who came to the battlefield um, on July 6th following the battle. Um, and he brought out his camera, and one of the images he captured was of the staff of one of the Second Corps field hospitals. 
and Gutkunst uh, proceeded to then sell copies of the photo and he raised the money and he donated to organizations working on relief for the soldiers and by showcasing the staff that was taking care of the wounded he made a patriotic appeal to the citizens for them to be like the medical staff and continue to galvanize effort for the war um, which was an interesting way of using the photography of what lie behind the tents that Gutkunst captured of the unseen horrors of battlefield hospitals. So what, let me go back a step and ask what brought both of you into studying the Civil War in the first place? Ms. Cam, we'll start with you this time. Um, as a child, one of my earliest experiences with the Civil War was reading the novel The Killer Angels. It fascinated me from a, a young child and I remember then it inspired a family trip on Columbus Day weekend, a three-day weekend off of school, to come out to the battlefield. And for my fourth grade class that year, we had to write a paper, a little assignment, about what we did on our three-day weekend. And I got to write all about the Battle of Gettysburg um, and my trip there. And I guess perhaps in that moment, it was when I became a Civil War historian, albeit untrained and amateur. Um, but since then, I have been captured by the Civil War and what happened here at Gettysburg. Ben, how about you? What What's your genesis? Uh, really, my parents. My mother grew up going to national parks, but uh, my father in particular was always um, very passionate about Abraham Lincoln. And uh, growing up, he read to me the Shelby Foote series, the selections from it, and then um, the Outlaw Josie Wales at mm -hmm. a, an embarrassingly young age was watched, and then uh, the Ken Burns Civil War tapes. And ever, ever, ever since then, it was just um, a passion. You know, we came to Gettysburg when I was seven years old. But um, it really became a professional ambition when I was in high school. I read um, Bell Irvin Wiley's Life of the Johnny Reb, Life of the Billy Yank. And um, I think in the afterward, one of his grad students uh, talked about Bell Irvin Wiley's life. And I just, you know, talked about reading letters and diaries. And I said, that's what I want to do. So <laughs> that's how I ended up here. Well, it, it seems like Gettysburg College is a good place to follow that. Um, what we'll do now is take a short break. We'll come back. Uh, I want to ask you about the, the curriculum, your experiences uh, here as students, and we'll talk more about uh, the, the younger generation and its interest or lack of interest in Civil War studies. Talking today with two Gettysburg College undergraduates, um, and uh, Cam Sowers and Ben Roy, and we'll be back in just a moment. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. Why do we laugh? How do we cope with stress? Are men and women really that different? What is it about our relationships? How are they formed? How they work out? And why they sometimes don't? Every week is something new to engage you. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea. 
to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Benjamin Roy and Cameron Sowers, two undergraduate students at the, uh, not the university, Gettysburg College, at Gettysburg College in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, uh, where they have participated in the Civil War Institute. They study the Civil War. and they today have been given the enormous burden of speaking for a generation uh, much younger than me. And I would guess most of uh, those of you listening, uh, we tend to be of a, a certain age. Uh, in fact, that's a question I'll ask in a minute. But I want to start with uh, the place we're sitting in here, Gettysburg College. Uh, what Does it offer particular opportunities to study the Civil War? Was that a factor in your decisions to come here? Absolutely. Yeah, I actually, I, I always knew, like I said, that I wanted to do um, history, and in particular Civil War history. Now that I've arrived, I've kind of branched out a little bit. But um, I toured almost all of the colleges I wanted to go to based on, you know, Civil War curriculum. So I looked at Shepard, I looked at um, College of Charleston, but um, just the Civil War Studies minor that Gettysburg has uh, really can't be beat. Yeah, I came into Gettysburg College thinking I was going to be a history and political science dual major. I had always been interested in the Civil War, but I was hesitant to right away commit to being a Civil War student. Um, But I started to get engrossed in the history department coursework and decided that that's what I was going to focus on. Um, Ben and I, our first year, were research volunteers, um, eager, wide-eyed freshmen at the Civil War Institute to write for their Killed at Gettysburg project. Um, and that project, the chance to work with uh, Dr. Ashley Lusky, who's our assistant director here at the CWI, she's incredible, and Dr. Carmichael himself, of course. Um, the first time they challenged me to really think critically about the Civil War, something just clicked in my head and the light bulb went off and I poured myself into it and I continue to do so because it has fascinated me endlessly and I fall in love every day with what I get to do. 
um, and every day is that wonderful experience. So it's really been my journey. That that is a, a great thing to say. Now, neither of you mentioned East Carolina University <laughs> as, as one of your potential uh, choices for higher education, uh, but we're going to overlook that and move forward. Uh, so, how about your your friends, uh, the, the environment here? Are, do you find yourself well, at, at ECU, we have a Phi Alpha Theta chapter, the History Honors Fraternity, and, and that gives the students a place to uh, hang out in the history lab with people who are also Phi Alpha Theta, and they talk, uh, they, they talk history, and they, <laughs> they don't look at each other as weirdos. Uh, how, how is the environment here? What, what do your classmates think of your commitment to this area? Well, we're actually both um, a part of the Phi Alpha Theta uh, History Honors Fraternity, but um, there's actually a pretty strong um, historical community on campus. We have a Civil War era studies house that uh, both Cam and I lived in, but um, it's kind of a little colony of weirdos rather than you know an accepted place. But uh, no, we we all of our friends they're they're kind of from that original mm -hmm. um, killed at Gettysburg volunteer group. Um, one of our Ben Hutchinson, Gary and Cost, our friends, they. Um, They'll be pleased with the name drop. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> well done. Now you you both mentioned killed at Gettysburg a couple times. Mm -hmm. uh, Cam, tell us about that project. Yeah, so it is a digital history project. It's a website killedatgettysburg.org that the Civil War Institute launched um, about two years ago now, where a student at the college will follow in the footsteps of one soldier who fights and is killed at the Battle of Gettysburg. We produce a narrative about their life their experience during the Civil War, and ultimately what their death meant, whether for their family, their unit, or on a national scale. Ben and I both produced soldier profiles. Ben wrote about Oscar Allen of the 5th New Hampshire, and I wrote about Philip Hamlin of the 1st Minnesota, a soldier I continue to research to this day. Um, it offers people the chance who may not be able to visit the Battle of Gettysburg and its fields in person. It offers them the chance to tour the map, to tour the battlefield digitally in the footsteps of a specific soldier who is here and killed at Gettysburg. Um, and it's a wonderful project. New profiles continue to be added all the time. Students at Gettysburg uh, love the project and we love writing for it. Um, we have continued to update it with Confederate and Union profiles. We've covered Patrick O'Rourke, I think is our highest ranking officer, but there's been a lot of privates and soldiers we otherwise would have known nothing about. It, it, it sounds like an interesting mix of, of technology and also getting students involved on an individual basis. Mm -hmm. um, getting students involved does seem to me a critical thing to do. As I, when I arrived here last Friday, uh, I was driving down the street just as the first session of Civil War Institute was getting out. People were coming out of the building. And on the sidewalk on one side are bustling uh, lacrosse teams, young uh, high school lacrosse tournament is going on. And other times, I would other years I've seen uh, girls soccer, uh, women's soccer teams running up and down, and then the Civil War Institute comes out, and it's the attack of the shuffling white zombies. <laughs> um, they're all bearded. They're all my age or older. Uh, and when I say all, I'm exaggerating grotesquely. There are women. There are people of color. There are young people involved. But by far the major demographic is is mine, the the, the white, balding, bearded, overweight Civil War guy. Uh, you guys represent a, a challenge to that, uh, a necessary one, because there aren't enough of me to keep this going much longer. 
uh, and and we don't bring anything new to the table. Uh, how 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 is the, the the torch going to pass? How are, how is what's going to happen to the civil war field? Are there enough of you and your cohort to make this keep going? I think we're a strong care a counter narrative to the generalization that young people aren't or do not care about history. Um, but in my experience, I think as a young person, I have found wherever I go a strong community of like-minded people. Whether it's here at Gettysburg College or at other colleges, there's vibrant history programs. Ben and I both served as um, interns in the National Park Service last summer. And we had the chance to intern with students from across colleges. I had students across the nation with me at Harpers Ferry National Historical Park. And they all relayed stories of college communities, of vibrant lovers of history. Any topic, anywhere, certainly a lot of Civil War buffs at the park. But I think it's something that the young people, we keep to ourselves that maybe the perceived lack of interest from young people isn't that young people aren't interested, but that older generations haven't found the places where younger generations channel their interest. What about, is that your experience? Uh, yeah, I definitely echo that and just add that I think younger people are engaging with history in different ways that I think um, older generations don't always see. So I think, you know, they, they might not be going to battle reenactments, they might not be going to battlefield tours and stuff like that, but I think, you know, you need to only look at the controversy over Confederate monuments that you were talking about today to know that young people do care about the American Civil War, they're just engaging with that memory in a very different way. And I just feel like the general uh, focus of history right now, popular interest in history, is actually moving more towards the Second World War. I think the 75th anniversary of D-Day, that mm -hmm. tour that you were talking about, I feel like a lot of people in our generation can look back to grandfathers or great-grandfathers and they have that more, not to say real, but closer connection to history and they want to know more about that than perhaps the Civil War. Not saying one is more important mm -hmm. or you know more relevant than the other, I think perhaps just the focus of history is shifting. So uh, you both talked about uh, internship experiences. Uh, tell me, tell me about that. Where uh, have you done field research? Uh, ben, we'll start with you. Uh, this summer, I've been doing um, field research for the Colby Fellowship. Um, I'm doing research on um, the Indiana University in the years before the American Civil War, which is a little bit of a mm -hmm. narrow topic. And of course, I'm not from Indiana and not going to Indiana University. But um, we had a lot of source material of David Beam. Professor Carmichael talked about him during the conference. And of course, he attended Indiana University. So I'm using his documents kind of as a basis to talk about masculinity in the 19th century and uh, college graduates. But last summer, we both did the Pohanka internship, and that wasn't necessarily research-oriented. That was a little bit more um, public history, giving tours, but that was incredibly valuable in its own right. You know, <laughs> growing up, I always wanted to be on the other side of the rope fence giving the firing demonstration, so mm -hmm. the chance to actually do that was awesome. I absolutely loved it. Yeah, I, like Ben, I served as a Poenk intern. I was at Harper's Ferry National mm -hmm. Historical Park. Um, I worked in the education department, so I specialized in family and youth programming. One of the major components of my job was a weekly leadership camp um, of middle schoolers, seventh to eighth graders who came to the park, and we talked about leadership through the lens of John Brown and his raid on Harper's Ferry. And I found a group of young people who maybe didn't know who John Brown was when they got to the park that morning but who left in the afternoon contemplating the implications of historical action and leadership 
and I think young people uh, at our age in, in perhaps turbulent times regarding monuments or current politics, that young people are looking for a serviceable history that provides context to the turbulence we perceive in our present. Um, and what I saw when relating the stories of turbulence in the 1850s in politics or John Brown's raid and his commitment that young people saw that division is nothing new and mm. I don't think we're on the verge of a second civil war but they were able to draw from strong leaders whose story we were able to tell at Harper's Ferry. One of the obstacles to students studying history uh, in my experience as a, as a professor is uh, that parents wonder if you will be living in their basement 10 years from now working at a fast food job because you have a degree in history when all your friends have a degree in construction management are out there you know making a living uh, did either of you experience any pressure or do you ever have any doubts about this well shout out to my brother who is a construction management major <laughs> um, yeah so no literally just as you said that was a conversation that happened quite a bit but um, I don't know if it was the same for you Cam but it was a little bit like every time someone would come to me and say hey what are you gonna do with a history major or you know express some kind of doubt it almost kind of made me want it more <laughs> oh, it made me want to succeed in history and um, thus so far of course speaking of my very very short career at college there's been no shortage of opportunities I've got a couple jobs on campus, one at Special Collections, I've worked at the CWI, so you know, and hopefully that continues as I go forward, but um, definitely encountered a lot of hostility, but not necessarily hostility, but uh, doubts, and um, how about you, Cam? I think a lot of my peers, when we would talk my senior year of high school of where we were going, what we were planning to do, that eyebrows were raised at my, at my wanting to be a history major. Um, but my parents were always encouraging of it. They, and I had conversations countless times with my mom and dad, um, when I just wanted to talk through what was going on in my life, that they reminded me the most important thing was that I was happy and that you will find a job and that you can be gainfully employed in any field and that someone has to have that job in the history field or somewhere that, um, I think of a sign that I think my grandmother gave to my oldest sister, um, go out into the world and, uh, do well, but more importantly, go out into the world and do good. Um, that no matter what your degree is, is you can have a positive impact, whether as a historian or or not. And so my parents reminded me to, to go out into the world and do good and be happy. And as a history major, that's where I saw I could do it. So it was full steam ahead. That, that's very good advice. I'll say, speaking as a, a former lawyer who realized wasn't happy, uh, but someone who was passionate about history, I've certainly never looked back, and, and it has worked out. Uh, so what would be your, your dream job uh, for each of you? Uh, and Cam, we'll start with you this time. Um, I actually made a joke once to Dr. Carmichael that my dream job was his job, um, <laughs> and the check he wanted me to write on the spot for the job wasn't large enough. Um, but I, I would love to teach. I'd love to go get my PhD um, and teach, especially at a school like Gettysburg, where I think a lot of the students that Dr. Carmichael works with will certainly go on to become accomplished academic historians or public historians, but there's a lot of students who go out into a lot of other professions, whether legal or business, wherever they may go, and that the skills you learn and teach in undergrad, just writing well, communicating well, public speaking, um, can be incredibly impactful, and to have that close engagement with a student is really what I would dream of having as a college professor. 
What about you, Ben? Uh, exactly the same. Uh, be be a professor at um, a research institution and write. You know, of course, teach and um, maybe do some public history. But I'm I'm really passionate about writing. Really want to get good at writing. So well, it it w that's a skill that serves in any field you go into, wherever you end up, is is being a good writer. Um, in the next segment, I'm going to talk about a place in town that I had the opportunity to visit uh, recently. And I want to ask you about it. There's a museum in town called, well, features historical dioramas, intricate and very well set up uh, 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 miniature dioramas of scenes of the Battle of Gettysburg and other Civil War scenes. The, the dioramas are a standard museum tool for illustrating the past. Uh, these are remarkable in part for their accuracy, but also for the fact that instead of tiny human figures, all the people in the dioramas are actually cats. Um, have you ever been to Civil War Tales, either of you? No, I have not. I uh, cannot say that I have. <laughs> well, uh, so now there's your homework assignment, is to, to check it out. It, it is a, uh, uh, last week I, when I was in London, I went to the National Army Museum. They had the Cyborn Waterloo model. Uh, Captain Cyborn researched, after participating in Waterloo, researched it for a lifetime and built a huge scale model of the battlefield with tiny soldiers and it's now a major exhibit and has been for over a century, uh, two centuries, at the National Army Museum in London. So this is a perfectly time-established and honorable and legitimate way to show battles, uh, but not with cats. Um, that, that's the curious part. Uh, well, gentlemen, uh, you have your homework uh, to go look at that. We'll talk with uh, Rebecca Brown of the, the Cat Museum in our next segment, but right now I just want to say to both of you, uh, best wishes for success in your careers academically and afterwards in the field of academic history or public history or whatever you do. I'm sure you'll be successful. Uh, thanks for spending time with Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you very much for having us. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Listeners, we'll be back with more Civil War Talk Radio in just a moment. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have we got a high-energy, all-access sports show for you? It's Outside the Huddle, starring Lemond Williams. Each week, join Lemond as he takes callers, discusses the week's top stories in the world of sports, and sits down with active and former players to discuss their transition from sports to business. Outside the Huddle is a great resource for players making career transitions both on and off the field. Tune in Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, and 5 Pacific for Outside the Huddle on the Voice America Sports Channel. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. 
stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Uh, Coming to you in this segment, as promised in the previous segment, live from Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, Uh, It's been the uh, week of the Civil War Institute here at Gettysburg College in 2019, June of 2019. But now I'm at uh, a house on Baltimore Street in Gettysburg called Civil War Tales, the uh, diorama museum at the the, uh, Homestead uh, House. I'm talking with Rebecca Brown. Uh, She and her sister Ruth are the proprietors and creators of this museum which is filled with dioramas of Civil War scenes. There are a lot of other such museums in Gettysburg. Uh, What makes this one unique is that the 8,000 tiny figures in these dioramas are not uh, humans but cats in Civil War garb. Uh, Rebecca, let me start with not the obvious question, why cats, but the thing that really strikes me about these dioramas is their incredible attention to detail. I'm looking at Pickett's Charge, and I'm seeing uh, you've got the, the, the scene at the, the angle and the, the cops of trees. And from a distance where we're sitting, maybe 15 feet away, it looks like a, uh, the kind of Civil War diorama you might see uh, in a museum or at a wargaming convention with tiny figures spread out. Uh, and the, the attention to detail is what is so striking, the accuracy. There is one figure for each person in the battle. It's not a representational diorama. One represents 20 or 50. This is literally a bird's eye view of what one might have seen. Why the attention to detail? I think it's because when we started making these, um, my sister Ruth and I, originally we would play with them as our toys, but when we started making dioramas, we wanted to tell the stories of the um, Civil War individuals. And so at first, you know, since we were young, we weren't um, trying to get anything to scale, but we were telling the story, for example, of how Stonewall Jackson got his nickname um, at first Bull Run. But then as we progressed, we started making them to scale. And I think part of it is just because for me, it, it helps me see what I'm reading about. Um, and it sort of is a way to capture a, a moment in time in history um, and, and to kind of be able to remember it. Um, and I think that's why, for us, we want to try and get it accurate. Um, and, and now, you know, 24 years into making these, um, we're making photos, I mean, making the rocks off of photos of the battlefield for Little Round Top. Um, Fort Sumter is based off of photos that the Confederates took right after the surrender. And so we're just trying to get the details correct like that and also the individuals on there. Um, for a specific point in time. There's an amazing amount of craftsmanship that goes into this, along with the research you're talking about, the uh, 
the diorama of the monitor at Merrimack, for example, not only shows the two ships in a, a scale, I'm going to guess that's almost 172nd scale. Uh, 196. Uh, 196. Yeah, they're three quarters of an inch tall. Okay, so those are that those the, the the Merrimack is over two feet long. Uh, looking at it here, uh, but in addition to the the external detail, you can lift off the tops of the ships and see the crews within, and there are little portholes cut in the side of the base. You can look underwater and see mm -hmm. the hulls of the ships. Um, just a remarkable amount of craftsmanship went into this. Did you have any training to do all this? No, it's kind of just learn as we go. And so that's why we have some of our older dioramas out so that we can show kids how we got started. Um, because I know for me, I would be intimidated as a kid if I was staring at little round top, 11 feet long with turf and trees and rocks and all that. I'd be like, I can't do that. Well, yeah, but you can do, first of all, run where it's just a box with green paper on it for the grass, because that's <laughs> our first diorama. Um, so, um, yeah, we just started off with that. We started doing fences out of toothpicks, you know, pretty much just whatever we had on hand, um, relying on cardboard and paper a lot for buildings. And Ruth made the great locomotive chase, which we haven't pulled out quite yet. Uh. I'm still figuring out how to display that one, but she made the two locomotives, um, the general and the Texas for that. And, and so, yeah, it's just kind of been a progression and gradually, um, experimenting around with with uh, what to make each feature out of. So the uh, the idea of creating miniature landscapes is is a hobby. Model railroaders do it. Miniature war gamers do it. Uh, it and museum uh, uh, construction uh, people, exhibitors, and, and uh, preparators do it. So that that's not unique. Uh, what is unique in this room is that the 8,000 tiny figures in the various dioramas are all cats. Uh, and so that's the obvious question I must ask. Uh, why are they cats? Well, when uh, my twin sister and I were 11, I read biographies on generals Lee and Grant, and then I made the two generals out of clay, and they quite naturally and automatically came out as cats in uniform. Um, and I think it's because we always had cats as pets, and mm -hmm. even when we were um, playing outside as Robin Hood, we would be cats and the bad guys, um, imaginary bad guys would be dogs. And so I think that's where the people as cats thing came from. And so it just kind of happened naturally. And then for some reason we got into the Civil War. So the more we were reading, the more we'd make the officers we were reading about, cats for them to command. Um, and then a few years after that, we started making dioramas. So it's just kind of been what we do for um, the last 20 years. and. Yeah. So you, you've gone far enough down this path, now it's no point in going back and redoing them as people or, or as dogs for that matter. Uh, well, yeah, um, it kind of has never crossed our mind, although uh, since we opened the museum, I think someone did ask that or comment that or something. And um, we're kind of like, well, I'm not remaking the angle with people. Like, <laughs> I mean, I, I made that diorama, I'm not remaking it. Um, but we've kind of discovered that, um, you know, for us, they're just our guys. We don't think of them as cats anymore, you know, because we're busy making the various officers, you know, to put on the diorama um, or the individual soldiers that, you know, we might know a sentence or two about from the, the reading so they're identified. Um, but when people come in, it, you know, they're seeing them as, as cats. And so 
it's been a lot of fun because you know you'll get cat people who are not necessarily into the history but then leave the museum wanting to read more about you know the individuals of the civil war because they they got inspired by seeing our dioramas um we've had several people comment on when they're looking at Pickett's charge on how if the figures were humans lying there wounded it wouldn't have affected them but since they're wounded cats it affected mm. them and is making them think of the actual soldiers who um, were involved and that that really surprised me the first time and it's really cool because that's kind of what our dioramas want to you know their purpose is to inspire people to um, learn more about the civil war and the individuals involved the human interest stories have always been what interests us um, more than you know causes and politics and overarching things well speaking of human interest stories uh, we're sitting here in this room that is not only unique for the 8,000 cat figures uh, but also because within Gettysburg this building has a story of its own could you talk about that yeah so um, during the battle a soldier was killed a sergeant up in town and the only way to identify him was the photograph of three children that he was holding and so a surgeon from Philadelphia ended up with the photo and decided to try and find the sergeant's family and figure out who he was. And so they distributed copies of the photo all through the North and articles, um, and they were saving up the, the proceeds to be able to support um, the sergeant's family when they found him. Um, eventually, they were able to find his wife and children and identify him as Sergeant Amos Humiston. Um, by then, the, they were kind of getting the idea of starting an orphanage for soldiers' kids, and it didn't actually happen until after the war, but in 1866, the orphanage opened up in the building next door, which was here during the battle um, also. And then in 1869, our house was built as the girls' dormitory to expand the orphanage. Um, so we didn't actually know that this building existed until we were looking to buy it and Ruth's reading the plaque out front going wait a second the place we're looking to buy is related to his story like we knew about Sergeant Humiston and the children of the battlefield um, story but yeah it kind of blew our minds to realize that we were actually looking to buy a house related to that that story and that history which is really awesome it is one of the great human interest stories uh uh, I had breakfast this morning at Civil War Institute with Mark Dunkelman, who uh, I, I'm sure you've met, who mm -hmm. uh, is, is the, the guru of 154th New York Regiment. That was Amos Humiston's regiment. Yeah. He's written a great deal about that. He's created the Coster Avenue mural here in town. Um, so you, you, you've met Mark? Yeah, we've met a couple times. He's been down here. Yeah. At, at, at breakfast, I told him I was coming here. I said, so what do you think? I was curious. And he said, oh, I think it's great. Uh, he, he loves the idea that you are perpetuating the story and bringing it to an audience that might uh, come to the battlefield where mom is a Civil War buff, but the kids aren't, or dad cares, mm -hmm. and the wife doesn't, right. something like that. But they can all come here and see something... Uh, and it's been fun because not only do you get the, the cat people who come because they're cats, but you also... We've had battlefield guides. We've had um, one of the educators from Hampton Roads Naval Museum come up just to see our uh, monitor and, mm -hmm. and Mary Mac of Virginia um, diorama. Um, and it's cool because you know they can enjoy it because they're seeing the individuals that they know about, like Lieutenant Warden inside the pilot house of the monitor. Um, and then yes, the, the cat people can come and enjoy seeing it and also you know, appreciate the history a little bit more too, so. 
So let's um, stand up and try an experiment new in the history of Civil War talk <laughs> radio of uh, sort of walking around uh, uh, audio verite style and look at uh, the exhibit you have in progress. This is a uh, diorama. Uh, I'm walking in here now for the first time to see uh, what I immediately recognize as Little Round Top, uh, the, the bare slopes of the rocks, the trees. This is, I think you said it was four. It's about four foot eight by 11 feet long. So this yeah. is a, a, a massive diorama. We've, I can see the 20th Main in the foreground. Uh, so this is capturing a specific moment of the battle? Yeah, the diorama reaches from about where the statue of General Warren is standing on a rock um, down to just past the 20th Main's monument. Um, so we could fit that 15th Alabama facing them. So the moment in time that we decided to portray is just after the 140th New York under O'Rourke is, uh, has come in to save the right flank of Vincent's brigade and Chamberlain's starting the charge with the left wing of the 20th Maine. Um, he wrote about hearing a great roar behind him just before ordering the charge and um, he was afraid that meant the Christ had fallen but it's prior O'Rourke coming in. So we'll still be able to have um, the 140th New York filing in. The first couple companies are in line fighting already. O'Rourke is probably dead by now. Um, Hazlitt's battery is still coming up. First couple guns are probably firing over to Devil's Den. We'll have gun number three trotting along the crest. They actually came up under horsepower. Um, and the left wing of the 20th Maine is starting to move forward in their charge. Um, so it was cool when we realized that we could have the different stories that we wanted to show all happening at the same time. It, and it is uh, just, again, as somebody who, who enjoys miniaturization, uh, just a fascinating thing to look at. Uh, the trees we can see here look like uh, lichen or... Uh, the reindeer moss. Reindeer yeah. moss uh, trees. You've got the ground cover, you know, flock or, or some other... Kind of, kind of uh, grassy, multicolored ground color cover. And you mentioned the rocks themselves. You actually researched the, the rocks you're putting in. Right. Um, now, for Devil's Den, we could use, you know, period photos as well as recent ones. Um, and, yeah, the rocks haven't changed. But for Little Round Top, the photos we have are taken from Devil's Den, so it's from across the field. Mm -hmm. um, so I have a few area shots from shortly after the battle or early 20th century. Um, which are particularly helpful, especially where the viewing platform is nowadays, to be able to see the rocks underneath there. Um, but for the most part, I based Little Roundtop's rocks after the, the ones that are currently on the field. And what about the, the terrain itself? Uh, is this a, a plaster paper yeah, over a framework? or what? what um, how we have you... a set of topographical maps um, mm -hmm. so that we can get the topography right. And we use layers of foam. Mm -hmm. um, foam insulation, I think it is. Um, our dad helps us to build it, and I think I'm finally old enough to figure out what he, he's doing <laughs> each time. Um, so we'll cut it to the topography lines and then shave it down to get the slope. And then for this one, we covered it with plaster cloth. Mm -hmm. So that's a good surface to protect the foam and then also still be able to punch through it to anchor the trees and also to glue the rocks and the turf down. Um, it's, it's a good surface for that. Well, it, it does give just a, a remarkably lifelike appearance. With, uh, with, with modern drone photography, uh, Jake Bort a few years ago did a, a video of the battlefield with, with drone photography. Okay. And, and I feel like I'm now hovering you know, over Little Round Top looking down. 
not just at modern scenery, but at the, the moment the battle is taking place. Um, this is probably an unfair question. Do you have a, a favorite of all the dioramas you've done, or you and your sister um, have done? The Angle is my favorite, just because Pickett's Charge is the favorite part of my favorite battle. Um, so that's always been near and dear to my heart. Um, Ruth's favorite diorama would probably be our um, first to scale diorama of Battery Wagner. Mm. Now that's one that we have pulled out because, again, it's it's a good example of how we got started. Mm -hmm. um, it's built on our plastic construction set um, of Ramagon. And so we're looking forward to doing a new version of it in Fort Sumter scale to update materials and also be able to have the whole regiment. Um, but that's the 54th Massachusetts, the, the first African-American regiment um, charging battery wagner. So that one's always been her favorite too. Well, this, uh, I, I wish we had more time to talk about everything. Uh, listeners, there is no substitute for seeing this place. If you can't immediately get to Gettysburg, there is a book called Civil War Tales, 8,000 Cat Soldiers Tell the Panoramic Story. Uh, it's by Ruth and Rebecca Brown. Uh, Rebecca Brown has been uh, our guest this afternoon on Civil War Talk Radio. Rebecca, thank you so much for what you are doing here and for showing us around. Yeah, thanks for having me. And listeners, as always, thanks for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.